Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Thanks to Harvest Host for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Harvest Host provides a cost-free opportunity for small businesses and farms to increase revenue simply by inviting self-contained RV members to stay one night on their property. In return, members patronize or donate to the business. Well-established hosts are reporting on an average of 15000 in annual additional revenue. For more information on how you can become a host or a member, contact Harvest Hosts today at harvesthosts.com. Hey, Thriving Farmers. In this podcast, we are airing one of our value-added summit talks from fall of 2022. The 37-plus speakers who joined us shared incredible expertise on how you can make more money while providing value to your family and community. We want to share a few of them with you here on the Thriving Farmer podcast. Want to gain access to all 37 presentations and trainings? Head to farmsummits.com to learn more. Hey, Thriving Farmers and Summit attendees. In this session of the Thriving Farmer Summit, value added, we are privileged to spend some time with best-selling author Sander Katz. For the past two decades, fermentation expert and best-selling author has traveled the world, both teaching and learning about the many fascinating, delicious techniques for fermenting foods. He's arguably the world's most experienced and respected advocate for all things fermented. The New York Times calls him one of the unlikely rock stars of the American food scene. His book, The Art of Fermentation, received the James Beard Award and was a finalist at the International Association of Culinary Professionals. His most recent work, Fermentation Journeys, Sandor shares valuable insights into their cultures and traditions of local and indigenous peoples, as well as 60 plus recipes for global ferments. Sandor, welcome to the summit. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, Walk us through a little bit of your journey. For those who may have not be as familiar with you, what got you started in the ferments? Well, I mean, there definitely were a few different stages Mm. in the emergence of my interest in fermentation. You know, I would say, you know, first as a, as a kid, uh, like I loved pickles mm-hmm. and I, I wasn't asking questions about how they were made, but you know, now I can recognize that the pickles that I grew up eating in New York city were uh, fermented and mm-hmm. it was a flavor of lactic acid, which really excited me as a kid. So, you know, I was drawn to, you know, one of the major uh, uh, flavors of fermentation. You know, then I spent a couple of years in my mid-20s following a macrobiotic diet, and that's what really got me thinking about some of the potential health benefits of fermented foods, because macrobiotics places an emphasis on the digestive benefit of pickles and other kinds of live fermented foods. And I started seeking these foods out more regularly and noticing that, you know, these pickles that I'd been eating my entire life, whenever I would take a bite on, you know, into one, I could feel the salivary glands under my tongue squirting out saliva. And so, you know, I began associating these foods in a very tangible way with getting my digestive juices flowing. 
Yeah. Uh, so I started eating fermented foods uh, uh, more regularly, but you know, really the catalyst for me to start learning how to ferment myself is that in 1993, I moved from my hometown of New York City to rural Tennessee, and I started gardening. You know, I was such a naive city kid, it had never occurred to me that in the garden, all of the cabbage is ready at about the same time, and all the radishes are ready at about the yep. same time. So the first season I was gardening and facing this reality of uh, agricultural production, um, you know, I looked at our nice row of cabbages and, and I thought like, oh, I should learn how to make sauerkraut. That has something to do with preserving cabbage. Yeah. And so, you know, I looked in the joy of cooking. I learned how to make sauerkraut from the joy of cooking. And that was really my gateway into fermentation. And then I started playing around. Oh, what happens if I use carrots or turnips or other vegetables uh, mm. in addition or instead? How, you know, can I season it differently? Can I use different amounts of salt? Then I started playing around with yogurt making and country wines. And, you know, pretty soon I had just gone down the rabbit hole. And, you know, mm. there's just an incredible diversity of fermented foods and beverages around the world. There's nothing we can eat that cannot be fermented in a, in a range of different ways. So, you know, it's a very, very, you know, all-encompassing uh, and nearly infinite realm of, you know, human cultural activity. Yeah. Now, something you said there, you kind of laid out a couple different things, but to you, share what, like, what fermentation is so broad. Share with folks kind of the extent of things that can be fermented. Well, as I said, I mean, anything we can possibly eat can be fermented. The way I define fermentation typically is that it's the transformative action of microorganisms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people figured out all of the major fermentation, fermentation processes that we use thousands of years ago. It's all prehistoric. But, yeah. you know, microbiology, which has only emerged over the last 150 years or so, um, you know, microbiology has illuminated for us that everything we eat, all of the plants and all of the animal products that make up our food are populated by microorganisms and never by one singular organism, always by these elaborate communities of organisms. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a, you know, microbial transformation of our food is more or less inevitable, uh, yeah. except in the case of foods that are dry when they're mature, like, you know, beans or grains, as long yeah. as you keep them dry, they won't ferment. But, you know, not every microbial transformation of food results in something delicious that we want to put into our mouth. So, you know, just as a practical matter, you know, our clever ancestors in every part of the world, you know, observed under what conditions does the food decompose into a disgusting, ugly mess that nobody would ever put into yeah. their mouth? Yeah. And under what contrasting conditions does it somehow become improved? And, you know, there are always um, practical benefits to fermentation. There's, there's a range of them. I mean, it could be producing alcohol, which may, maybe not everybody considers practical, but certainly there's a yeah. universal desire for, um, you know, what that does for us. Preservation of food, you know, uh, many ferments, ferments of milk, ferments of vegetables, uh, many ferments of meat and fish are really strategies for, you know, uh, uh, taking otherwise perishable food resources and making them more stable for short or sometimes long-term preservation. Um, 
digestibility, making foods, making nutrients more bioavailable, making foods more digestible, removing certain plant toxins from foods, making food more delicious. Fermentation creates strong flavors. Not everybody loves every flavor of fermentation, but certainly, you know, the range of flavors available to us are is broadened by by the practice of of, of fermentation. Um, in recent times, there's been a great interest in uh, the bacterial cultures themselves. I mean, you know, until yeah. until the 20th century, nobody was particularly thinking about that. Maybe in many cultures, there's you know, sort of a, a folklore recognizing the nutritional importance or the therapeutic benefits of, of uh, uh, certain fermented foods. But, you know, today in the context of our growing awareness of the microbiome and its importance, a lot of people are seeking out fermented foods for their biodiversity because they're a great strategy for restoring biodiversity in the gut, which can potentially improve mm-hmm. digestion, overall immune function. There's new evidence suggesting it can impact upon um, um, serotonin and other, you know, biochemicals in our, in our, in our brains that determine how we think and how we feel. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of different practical benefits uh, to fermentation. Yeah. I mean, to the point of sourdough bread, you know, something that like regular bread, I have trouble digesting, but the sourdough bread, because that is a fermented, it's much easier on my, uh, my system. So, well, um, so, so just, just to clarify, like, you know, I mean, regular bad bread, if you make it with a packet of yeast, I mean, that is, that's also fermentation, but right. you know, the isolated yeast in a packet is something that only came into existence in the 20th century. And, you know, all of the bread for the first, you know, 9,900 years of bread making was made with what we would now call natural leavening or sourdough, yeah. which involved community of organisms that involves not only yeast, but lactic bacteria. And the lactic bacteria are hugely important because they break down gluten. They make the minerals in the grains much more uh, bioavailable. The acidity that they cause makes the bread stable. So it stays fresh longer. Uh, It tastes better. I mean, really like everything is better about, um, um, you know, naturally leavened bread the only thing is it takes a little bit more technique and yes. it takes a little bit more time. And in a, you know, in a context where time is money, it's become a sort of an artisan specialty when in fact, you know, all bread until the 20th century was made via natural leavening. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing the the how quick that fermentation and that actual starter can transition and the flavor profiles can change a little bit. You have someone's sourdough and someone else's sourdough, and it can be two very different things, which is so awesome to kind of see just the variation there as well. Well, there's a lot of variability in fermentation, and this yes. is one of the great things about fermentation. And this is one of the reasons why in the industrialization of, of fermentation, there's been an attempt to, you know, maybe dumb down fermentation, you know, make it, you know, re- reduce the biodiversity so that there's less variability. But, but, but really in that variability lies the, you know, the greatest potentials of it. I mean, you yeah. know, the greatest cheeses in the world are made through, you know, a spontaneous fermentation based on what's in the raw milk that the cheese is made from the greatest wines in the world are naturally fermented wines that rely upon yeast that are that are on the grapes etc etc so uh we've we've gotten all the like the benefits the health benefits we've talked about that how it can do so many different things there 
I know a lot of people start diving into this and, and it's really been interesting because even we've given the sourdough started to our neighbors or, you know, starting to show them, we've given them cucumbers and they started to do pickles, but a lot of people are really cautious, a little nervous about stepping down that road. And they're always concerned, well, is it spoiled or not? Or what's that whole aspect of things? Share a little bit about some things that they can do to make sure they're, you know, not going to kill themselves. Well, I, I mean, just try, try to let go of your anxiety. I mean, the first time I taught a sauerkraut making workshop, which was in 1998, I, yeah. I have the vivid memory of uh, a young woman who was there, picked up the jar of vegetables that we had just shredded and salted and packed into jars. And she just had this like terrified look on her face, staring <laughs> at it. And she said, how can I be sure there are good bacteria growing in here and not dangerous bacteria that might make me sick and and you know I've, I've i've learned that you know in a in in a population like us in the united states and people in many places uh, uh where you know we've been taught all of our lives how dangerous bacteria are how important it is to avoid bacteria uh yeah. we have all these to destroy bacteria. It's very easy to project all of that anxiety about bacteria onto the idea of cultivating bacteria in a jar. So, I mean, let me just say off the bat, I mean, fermentation is a strategy for safety. Like it's all about manipulating environmental conditions in ways that encourage the growth of certain organisms while simultaneously discouraging the growth of other kinds of organisms. Food does not get safer than sauerkraut. Um, I, I mean, there have been hardly any anywhere in the world or throughout history, there have been hardly any reports of illness or food poisoning. And if you let it mature, if you let it ferment for a few weeks, there are none. And, you know, contrast that with the outbreaks we contend with every year. You know, this year it was red onions, one year it was yes. cabbages, one year it was lettuce, one year it was apples, one year it was tomatoes. Um, you know, clearly there's the possibility of vegetables becoming, you know, contaminated in incidental ways, you know, generally via manure from a factory farm uphill washing over a field of vegetables. Yes. Could just as well be sloppy handling, somebody who fails to wash their hands at, you know, one of those moments of critical hygienic intervention. But let's say we had a bunch of cabbages that had been exposed to cells of salmonella or, or E. coli. Yeah. And we shred it and we salt it and we get it nice and juicy and we pack it in the jars and get it submerged. Every single time, lactic acid bacteria, which are always there mm -hmm. on the cabbage, are going to dominate. Lactic acid bacteria actually are, are believed to be present on all plants growing out of soil on planet Earth. And wow. once you get it into that uh, uh, environment where it's submerged in a salty brine, then every single time lactic acid bacteria dominate. And as they acidify the environment, even if there happen to be some cells of salmonella or E. coli or some other organism that theoretically could make us sick, they are destroyed by the acidity. And this is just like, you know, such a convenient and elegant mm -hmm. thing for us that, that like acidification makes our food safe. And in every realm of fermentation, it is a strategy for safety. I mean, you, you know, practices like these don't get passed down generation to after generation, you know, if people do not perceive them as being safe. Yes. And well, if they have to survive it first. Yeah, 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 sure. 
we've done a lot of sauerkraut and that's something my wife actually pretty much all winter on our plate at every dinner, there's going to be a little pile of sauerkraut because again, it's good for us and it gives us those nutrients and um, yeah, it's good food. Well, and, and in terms of like the theme of value added, like, okay, yeah. like you know, a, a cabbage at the supermarket might be 59 cents a pound, 39 cents a pound, 79 cents a pound. Organic might be $1.19 or $1.39 a pound. Yeah. But sauerkraut, a, you know, a, a pint-sized jar of sauerkraut, you know, that's something that people are paying, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12, 14 dollars for. So, Absolutely. you know, I, I would say, I mean, sauerkraut is not unique in this regard, but you know, a lot of different fermented foods and beverages have been classic uh value-added products. And yeah. you know, they make they make the cabbage, you know, more valuable and they enable it to be preserved for much longer periods of time. Yeah. Um, it was kind of pickles that saved our farm. We were growing a boatload of cucumbers and we're like, let's do the natural progression. And it takes a dollar cucumber to make a $8 jar of pickles. Yeah. Yeah. So that aspect, you're right. That aspect of value adding, taking the raw, not only preserves it for way much longer. I mean, cabbage does preserve for a while, but cucumbers yeah. two week shelf life and it's done. And now you've got it for months and months. Yeah. Hi, from Hermiston, Oregon. This is Darcy Scarberry, owner of Alpine Drive Alpacas. We are Harvest Hosts. The biggest results we have seen by being hosts is actually our animals. They have changed to be looking for customers, being petted and pictures taken of them. They love it. I think showing how a working farm can be more than endless work has been amazing. Fun too and meaningful. And the change of mind about farms in general, as farms struggle in the past, now this is a way to, for them to earn money too and show up what we have and what we do. The biggest surprise to us has been the single women traveling. They're probably about 25% of my customers are single women. The other best surprise though in this is our son who is 32. He is handicapped and he has a rare form of spina bifida. He has helped and been talking to our customers and even given tours of our farm to our guests. It feels like he now has purpose and that being in a wheelchair should not stop him from meeting new people. He even wants to do cart rides with his mini horse to people. He's learned he can make money doing this. Harvest Host has impacted our farm in many ways, all for the good. It's added an income to our family. It's added the ability to talk to people from all over the place and it's even given us different perspectives from attorneys to vets. It's open doors we didn't know were there for our farm, like having guests that have special needs, mental, physical, etc., and their interaction with our crazy animal farm. Having animals from A to Z now makes sense because of Harvest Host. Here's a little story about our guests. We had a family from Canada and they were great. When they left, she texted me giving me clues about things they had left around the farm for us. It was so special to go hunt for these beautiful painted rocks their daughter had made for us. This is what Harvest Host brings to our farm in a nutshell. The best people ever and the best experiences. Share with us a little bit about what are the more unusual things that you've seen people ferment that have turned out very well? I mean, honestly, there's just like, there's no, if you just think like 
There's nothing you can possibly eat that cannot be fermented. So, I mean, that doesn't mean that, Yeah, I mean, reasons why certain foods have much greater traditions of fermentation. So, you know, in the vegetable world, you know, cabbages have a ton of, of, of traditions of fermentation, kale less so. It doesn't mean you can't ferment kale. It just means that dark green vegetables that are extremely rich in chlorophyll have a much stronger flavor when they're fermented and mm. cabbage has a much milder flavor when, when, it, when it's fermented. But you can certainly incorporate some kale in your sauerkraut as a, you know, flavor accent and a, and a, and a color accent and a nutritional accent. You know, similarly, you know, there's all kinds of uh, uh, traditions about uh, curing pork that involve fermentation. Salamis are uh, are are fermented. Um, hams involve, uh, or certain kinds of hams involve fermentation. You could ferment a chicken just as well as you could ferment a a, a pig, but there's less practical reason to do so because, mm. you know, uh, uh, historically, typically, uh, you know, uh, people slaughter a chicken and, you know, that's a meal. There's not like, you know, 400 pounds of meat that you can't eat that you need to preserve for a long period of time. So, um, you know, but you can ferment like absolutely anything. Um, now, you know, when it comes to grains and beans, typically we're not fermenting for preservation because when those are when those are mature they're dry and you know yeah they preserve best if you can just keep them dry and in fact the first step of fermenting them is always adding water to them and um you know water um uh basically brings back dormant microorganisms and those organisms can begin to access nutrients and and you know you can from any kind of grain or bean and there's lots of traditions of that things like miso and Mm -hmm. soy sauce and tempeh but also you can do really simple things like just soaking them like you know a lot of a lot of traditions of porridges around the world have historically been fermented and you Mm. know i do that with oats i'll just soak them for a couple of days in water and it and actually you can drink the water the the water that's the class that's the original oat milk is Mm. like you know if you soak your 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 rolled or steel cut oats for a couple of days in water, a lot of the nutrients will go into that water. It begins to ferment. Super delicious, nutritious, and then you can take those soaked grains and cook them and get the creamiest oatmeal. You know, grains can be can be fermented in in simple or in very elaborate ways. You know, I mean, some of the fermentation traditions that you know, are most unique in different places involve fermentations of, 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 of meat and fish. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, fish and meat are fermented very widely in the world, but they're sort of inherently more complicated to ferment because the fermentation byproducts that we could describe as, um, uh, biopreservatives are all fermented from carbohydrates. And, uh-huh. you know, there's a, only a negligible carbohydrate content in, animal flesh. Um, It's mostly, it's mostly protein. And, you know, there's ways that you can ferment protein, but it doesn't necessarily preserve it. So like, you know, something like fish sauce, like that's just fish and salt and, and basically, you know, enzymes along with uh, uh, halophilic bacteria, salt loving bacteria found in the intestines of the fish basically decompose the fish. So Mm. you couldn't say fish is being preserved. It's being transformed. It's being liquefied. 
you know, basically, and and, yeah. you, and used as as a seasoning. But you know, let, let's think about sushi. Like you know, sushi's gone totally global. I'll bet you know everyone who is uh, uh, watching this yes. has has had sushi at some point. But would you eat in a sushi restaurant that didn't have a refrigerator? That's a question <laughs> I love to ask people because you know refrigeration has only been on the scene since yeah. the. 20th century. So, you know, a lot of the historical sushi that's still made and still wonderful is called narazushi. And it's basically fish fermented in a bed of rice. And so if you introduce some other carbohydrate source, then you can get a rapid acidification that preserves fish or meat very well. And, and across Asia, there are, you know, a lot of techniques. Sushi is not the only one that um, I also love to make a, a nam, which is a high style of fermenting ribs and you basically huh. make a paste of um uh, uh, rice and garlic and salt and you coat each rib in that and then short term you just like three to five days i put them in a ziploc bag get get as much of the air out as i can massage it every day to move that paste around and then at the end of the five days i, I cook it and it's just like so beautifully transformed by the oh yeah by the, by the short fermentation but then in some places there are just unique environmental conditions uh, uh last year i went to the faroe islands mm. and um you know the, that's a little set of islands in the north atlantic between like iceland and the uk in the faroe islands they ferment the legs of sheep they just they just hang them in these special little structures they have that have wooden boards separated by a little gap okay and so, you know, around this is the time of year, the end of September, beginning of October is when they slaughter the, the sheep, they hang the legs, and they don't use salt, they don't do anything, they just hang it. And it's a windy, windy place. And the slats allow a certain amount of the wind to get into these structures, and the wind carries salt from the sea. Yeah. So yeah. They, they get dried, they get salted, the temperature there is very, very mild. Um, um, and you know, it's a delicious, delicious style of, of curing sheep, but you know, you couldn't do that where I live in Tennessee. You yeah. probably couldn't do that where you live in Ohio. It really, you, yeah. you know, a lot of fermentation traditions really evolve out of unique conditions in specific places. Yeah. Yeah. Something my wife did last year, which I liked was a fermented salsa. Sure, sure. That that's beautiful. I mean, tomatoes yeah. can be challenging to ferment because they'll never hold their form fermented. But you know, if you just break it down and make it into salsa and do yeah. a short-term ferment, the thing is, it's so sugary that you know a long-term ferment, uh, you know, could potentially get pretty alcoholic. But yeah. it'll be pretty dynamic. But yeah. but but certainly a short-term ferment just adds so much flavor and character and complexity to it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, the bacteria, if you're trying to get, you know, that lacto for your gut. So, um, yeah. yeah. Talk about your most recent work, Fermentation Journeys, um, which I think would be a great resource for a lot of our listeners. What prompted you to write that book? Okay. Well, here, first of all, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll just show it off. And um, uh, it's basically a book about foods and beverages that I've learned about in my travels. And I've had the good fortune to mm -hmm. be invited to teach in a lot of different places. And everywhere I go, I, I, I learn about fermentation. And I've known for a while that I would eventually write a book like this, but I was too busy traveling. And mm. 
and 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 teaching but then you know when the when the pandemic came and all of my plans for 2020 fell through i decided this was my opportunity to 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 write this book and so yeah. i mean actually a lot of the things that i've just been talking about are are in this book yeah. there's a recipe for a style of japanese fermented uh, uh, sushi for the the thai nam which is the 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 pork ribs there's like, you know, Croatian style of fermenting whole heads of cabbage and beautiful ways of, uh, um, um, you know, using those, uh, yeah. the, the big leaves from oh, the yeah. cabbage to make like stuffed cabbage dishes, things like that. There's a lot of different fermentation ideas. I mean, there's recipes and then, you know, also some descriptions of things that you can't make anywhere. So for instance, uh, I write about Pulque, which is this most amazing um, uh, ferment that people drink in Mexico. It's a, it's a, a fermentation of the uh, sap of the maguey, the agave plant. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, nobody's really figured out how to stabilize this. So it's not found outside of the regions where the plant grows, yeah. but you know, it's incredibly delicious and there's an incredible culture uh, around it. Um, and so, you know, I've written about it, even though, you know, most readers are not going to be living in yeah. places where, you know, there's a lot of wild agave. So it's, it's sort of like a mix of, you know, things that anybody could make in their home. Definitely some some exciting new vegetable fermentation ideas I've learned about. I, I traveled in China and, and, you know, all the historical literature about sauerkraut like points to China and says that they, basically the nomadic people of Central Asia saw... Um, uh, and and ate cabbage fermented in a brine in China and sort of spread the idea westward. Um, and when I when I traveled in China, I learned a lot about Chinese styles of pickling vegetables and uh, yeah. different recipes in the book, including uh, pao cai, which is you know basically you create a spiced brine and then it's a it's a perpetual brine. So I mean I'm still working with this with with the same brine four years later and I just keep putting vegetables in and you know I have to fortify it add salt uh, uh, add more seasonings but you know it makes really really delicious pickles and it's really fun to have this sort of perpetual pickling pot in my kitchen interesting they just pull stuff out after how long does it take to really ferment stuff in that I mean, you know, I I love it. You know, I love to leave stuff for a week or longer. Sometimes when when I've gone out on tour with it and I'm showing people how to make these pickles, a day is plenty. You know, once you have a mature brand, it will take you a couple of weeks to make your first batch of pickles. But then yeah. you know, once you have a mature brine that's acidic and dense with lactic bacteria, yeah. then you, you can put vegetables in and the next day you can take them out and, and eat them. But the flavor will continue to intensify if you give them yeah. more time. More time. Very cool. What have you done with, have you done a lot with Napa cabbage? Because it's a little yeah, bit. Sure, sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I. Well, I love Napa cabbage, but I yeah. specifically seek it out when I'm making kimchi. In yeah. You know, all, really all of my books have, have recipes for kimchi and there's a yeah. lot of ways of making kimchi. But one thing I love to do is take a whole head of Napa cabbage and I'll soak it in a brine. That's usually the okay. first step for me for making kimchi yeah. is I soak the vegetables in a brine. But if you soak a whole head of Napa cabbage in a brine for 24 hours and then take it out, then it then it becomes pliable enough that you can open it up like uh, a flower. And yeah. then a little spice uh, uh, paste 
yeah. usually with a rice flour base. I, I yeah. a little bit of rice flour and cold water and then bring that to a boil and it becomes like a paste. Cool that off, add my chilies, my garlic, uh, my ginger, whatever seasonings yeah. I'm using. If I'm using a little fish sauce, and then I then I'll 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 take a spoon and like paint each uh, a layer of the napa cabbage with that, and then fold it back up into a head, and then bury it in the shredded vegetables. And um, yeah. that's just a you know that's a dinner party presentation. You know, you pull oh, yeah. a whole head of, of of kimchi, put it on a platter, slice it up. Um, but I but I, I love to do that. But but I mean napa cabbage is particularly yeah. wonderful as kimchi. But I also love to use it in my pout side, the Chinese style pickles. And yeah, you, you can make you can do sauerkraut method, just dry salting with with anything. I mean, the big batch that I do every year is mm. with daikons. I, I have a yes. friend who's a biodynamic farmer and mm. he plants daikons as a cover crop. And, you know, the end of October, every year I go out to his farm and fill up a pickup truck with um, uh, uh, daikons and, yeah. you know, he'll give me a few cabbages. You know, last year I had a lot of chilies, so I put chilies yep. in them. But I'm, I am still, I am still giving this away, and um, it's almost time for the new daikon harvest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at a field of uh, napa right out the window. So, nice. what would you say? Do you have a, f- a favorite ferment? I mean, you kind of hinted a little bit there that you may. Well, I don't, you know, part of what I love so much about fermentation is the variety of it. I mean, I yes. certainly eat fermented vegetables every day. Yeah. Um, um, well, I just got back from three weeks of traveling and some period, some parts of that, I was not able to eat fermented vegetables every day. And I noticed, yeah. um, uh, my, you know, my, my digestion, you know, really slowed down as, as, as a result of that. I mean, I, I, I love to eat fermented vegetables, but I love to have a variety of them around. And so, yeah. you know, I've just described a couple of the styles, the, yeah. the, 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 the the radish kraut, the kimchi, I don't have a favorite, but, and, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm very committed to fermented vegetables, but I don't know that I could honestly tell you that I like fermented vegetables more than I like cheese. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I could tell you that I like fermented vegetables more than I like beer. So I just feel very lucky that like, you know, we live in a world where there are, you yeah. know, just so many wonderful flavors and nobody is forcing me to choose just one. You know, I, I like yeah. contrasting flavors. I like variety. Yeah. What about a favorite fermenting tool? Well, I mean, you know, I, I have a collection of beautiful crocs, you know, some of <laughs> them you know, very, very artful, you know, and yet I'll, I'll say that, you know, just as often I use jars and certainly in my teaching, I mean, yeah, if you get into doing this and doing like larger quantities, you'll definitely want to get a hold of some ceramic crocs, but yeah. you know, for most people just, just playing around in their kitchens, like Honestly, you can't do better than a quart size wide mouth mason jar. Yeah. Um, a mason jar fits about two pounds of vegetables. And, um, you know, that that works really well. I mean, sure, if you start getting, you know, a five pound crock, a uh, five gallon crock, you know, that takes about 40 pounds of vegetables. Yes. So I'm actually in the middle of like shredding 40 pounds of cabbages, but yeah. that's a project. And, yeah. you know, for, for most small households, that's, you know, that that's not what they need. You know, now yeah. if you have a big field of cabbage, then then that's a different story. Yeah. When you get to that large scale, are they using barrels? 
barrels work great. I mean, wooden barrels work great. Uh, you know, the the plastic barrels uh, uh, work great. Um, I'm, you know, I would say, you know, glass, glazed ceramic, uh, uh, wooden barrels, like those are ideal. Mm-hmm. Plastic, I mean, you know, really most of the commercial manufacturers that I yeah. meet are, are, are using plastic. Some of them are using these um, very high quality industrial stainless steel cylinders. Don't don't use household stainless steel. Like you know, the the problem with metal is that both salt and acids can can uh, uh, corrode the metal. And here, you know, we're using salt uh, um, to create conditions conducive to the formation of acids. So, you know, stay away from from metal unless you're using, you you know, what what they call 316, uh, uh, just, you know, high quality uh, um, industrial grade uh, uh, stainless steel. But all those other things, ceramic, glass, wood, plastic work perfectly. Yep. Now for shredding, do you prefer a knife or do you have an actual shredder? Oh, I've got all kinds of tools. I mean, honestly, mostly myself. I mean, I'm doing like 40 pounds of cabbage right now. I, I just use a sharp knife and a, and, a, and a cutting board. There's a traditional tool that I would say is probably the inspiration for a mandolin. It's called a kraut board. And it's yes. like a stationary board with generally uh, two or three blades and and you run the cabbage over the blades. So, you know, the kraut board is, is wonderful. A mandolin could be wonderful. Be careful of your fingers. You know, a food processor, most of the people who I meet who are running businesses where they're, you know, shredding hundreds of pounds of cabbages or using, you know, what's called a continuous feed food processor, yeah. like a RoboCoop, and they're just feeding it through. Some of the bigger businesses have these much more specialized cabbage shredding machine. So, I mean, there's a variety of machines you can, you, you can use, but I think, you know, certainly for most people just doing this for themselves at home, uh, your best bet is a, is, is, is a cutting board and a knife. And, you know, for anyone who's like, you know, like a farmer who might be making a couple of hundred pounds of it, you know, either a food processor or a kraut board. I mean, you can find contemporary kraut boards. You can find old kraut boards in uh, uh, antique malls and junk shops everywhere. So, you know, there are lots of options. Yeah. Awesome. And, and also, and also, I should say, you know, you, you can ferment other things like, you know, right now my, my garden is just popping out peppers and, um, you know, you can make fermented hot sauce. You know, for that, I usually use a, a, a food processor because, um, you know, I just don't want to get my fingers like sort of too caught up in all in, in, in all of that. You can make fermented beverages, I mean, vegetable fermented beverages. I mean, the famous example is beet kvass, mm-hmm. where you, know, you would fill up your jar about a quarter or a third of the way with um, uh, little cubes of, of beets and then cover it with water at a pinch of salt. And then the flavor and color and sugar from the beets slowly infuses into the water and it begins to ferment. And that can just be an incredibly beautiful uh, a beverage. And by the way, I do have a recipe for that in my new okay. book. Get the book. <laughs> um, what here, let, me, let me also just show my, 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 my earlier books, Wild yes. Fermentation. This is the one that originally came out in 2003. This is the revised edition from 2016. I would say this is probably the most accessible introduction if you're just okay. like looking to, yeah. looking to start a fermentation practice. And then this is this is the big one. This is the art of fermentation. Um, you know, some people have said too much information, but if a lot of information is what you're after, yeah. 
so this is a this is a good source for it. And here I just have two other books I'm going to show off. Um, the Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved: Inside America's Underground Food awesome. Movement. Wrote this in 2006, uh, and it's still around in print. And uh, Fermentation as Metaphor, which is not so much practical information about about fermentation, but it happens that in the English language, we we talk about, you know, any kind of bubbly, excited phenomenon as fermentation. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I just sort of explore the metaphorical possibilities of, of fermentation. Yeah, very cool. What you, you said, the, the which one again was the beginners? Just hold that one up again. Wild, wild fermentation. So if you want to get started. Where you'll find, you know, basics of how to yeah. make sauerkraut, how to make kimchi, how to start a sourdough. And, you know, it, it sort of like covers the basics. Yeah. Now you held up that jar of ferments and it looked like it had a wooden lid. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, this is just, you know, okay. these days, these days people are making all kinds of interesting lids for, um, yeah. for mason jars. That um, is really cool. So, you know, the, 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 the standard canning lid, you know, one of the limitations of that with an acidic fermentation is that, you know, they do, they, they will over time corrode. So, you know, you can use the plastic lids, but the plastic lids tend to not seal as well. So um, uh, this company I encountered, Mason Tops, makes wooden wooden tops for them. They make a variety of different tops for them. But, yeah. you know, without having brand loyalty, there's just there's a lot of accoutrements available for mason jars these days, including little glass discs that you can use as weights mm-hmm. to hold everything down under the brine, which is really, really handy. I mean, I have, you know, mostly used improvisational methods like, yeah. Like an outer leaf of the cabbage and folding it up a little bit and and yeah. sort of uh, making that fit like a spring to hold everything down and that works fine but these little glass discs are very like kind of um easy and a uh, convenient solution. Yeah, absolutely. Um is there any food that you've found that maybe you shouldn't ferment? I mean we talked at the beginning like yes, you can ferment anything, but is there something maybe something that like typically just doesn't work well? Well, I mean, okay, the classic thing I get asked about is zucchinis. So your summer garden, you know, you're you're just getting these giant zucchinis. You don't know what to do with them. Can I just ferment them? The answer is like, yes, you can ferment zucchinis. You you can make beautiful short-term fermentations mm-hmm. of zucchini. But if you're thinking you're going to preserve them well, so you'll be able to enjoy zucchini all winter long, they typically get pretty soft and mushy if you mm-hmm. ferment them beyond a few days. So, you know, it's not that it would ever hurt you or or be dangerous. It's just that, you know, texturally, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're, they're kind of challenging. But I mean, I would say that, you know, the foods that are most challenging, it's not that you can't ferment them. It's just that like, you know, you need to experiment a little bit and sort of, you know, find a method, a length of time, a salt proportion that works. Like, you know, in terms of the texture of vegetables, you know, all vegetables, if you ferment them long enough or with low enough salt or in a warm enough environment, they'll all get soft and mushy, but certain vegetables that will happen faster. So, you know, it's sort of like finding the salt proportions that work for you. If you have a cool environment, like a root cellar, working with that, you know, or just some things fermenting for shorter periods of time. Very cool. As we wrap up our time today, do you have a final word of wisdom for someone who's 
inspired by this and just wants to go out and get started? Well, I mean, the biggest things I would say is like, you know, try not to worry, try not to project all your anxiety about bacteria onto the idea of fermentation. People have been fermenting in every part of the world since before recorded history. It generally just makes food safer than it is without fermentation. So, you know, just try not to worry about it and try not to overthink it. Like some people imagine like, oh, this is, this is like rocket science. You have to weigh everything precisely and use precise Mm -hmm. portions it's it's just not like that. Like with most ferments, you can really be very experimental, um, uh, you know, salt things to taste. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I recommend fermented vegetables as the most accessible, uh, most straightforward way to begin a fermentation practice. And then from there, you know, you can go in any direction, uh, you know, country wines, fermented cider, uh, yogurt, you can do cheese making at home. I mean, the the world of fermentation is uh, uh, expansive and exciting, um, but just don't be intimidated. Mm, that is great final words of wisdom. Well, Sander, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an honor to interview you and uh, just glean some of that wisdom. And uh, yeah, I love your shirt, by the way. Oh, thank yes. you. Well, it's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Harvest Host for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Harvest Host provides a cost-free opportunity for small businesses and farms to increase revenue simply by inviting self-contained RV members to stay one night on their property. In return, members patronize or donate to the business. Well-established hosts are reporting on an average of 15000 in annual additional revenue. For more information on how you can become a host or a member, contact Harvest Hosts today at harvesthosts.com. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com. 